Today on Blue 58, the Packers face a few teams in 2020 that are really difficult to pin down. How do you figure out what to make of them now? A good place to start is taking a look at their off-season decision-making. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of ThePowerSweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here for another episode. We're going to finish out our look at the Packers' 2020 opponents today and then take a look at Take Your Eye Off the Ball, Chapter 10. We're talking about defensive backs this time, and there are some interesting implications as far as the Packers go. So let's dive in with a bit of a discussion about the Packers' upcoming opponents for 2020. Four to go on this episode. The Colts, the Eagles, the Panthers, and the Titans. Let's start with the Colts. When do the Packers play them? Week 11, the Packers are on the road for this game. It's a noon kickoff in Indianapolis. Sweet little stadium they've got down there, Lucas Oil Stadium. Nice place to see a game. Uh, Pretty place to just drive by. It's a nice looking stadium. So, um, if you're in the area, maybe you should stop by. Good place to, to watch a football game. This, the Colts were 7-9 and nine in 2019, third in the AFC South. Just the consummate feeling of an also-ran team. They weren't really outstanding or terrible in anything other than running the ball. They were 7th overall by DVOA in 2019, but overall... Nothing super special on either side of the ball. 19th by DVOA on offense, 17th on defense. Not going to just get blown out of the water on either side, but nothing really all that exciting either. They are trying to change that, however, uh, because apparently one of the things that they saw as a shortcoming in 2019 was their quarterback situation, and they've gone out and tried to remedy that by signing Phillip Rivers. And hey, it's worth a shot. If you think there are two situations to explain Rivers not being super outstanding in 2019, it's worth rolling the dice on one of them not being true. Are you betting the Chargers were just snake-bitten and the, the team just wasn't that good around him? Or the other possibility was that Rivers was just old. If you're inclined to think that he was old and that's why he's been in decline, there is some some juice to that statistically. His adjusted net yards per attempt were the lowest they were since 2012, one of the best single indicators of, of passing success. He's also 39, and chances are that trend is not going to reverse at that age. But on the, on the other hand, the Chargers were not that great. They didn't really have that many people for Rivers to throw to. They were in and out of the lineup a lot. And he was still pretty good not that long ago at age 37. So you, you, it's, it's worth a shot on a one-year deal, I guess, if you don't have any other options. And the Colts really didn't. And if it turns out that that Rivers isn't any good, they'll just bottom out and take a quarterback near the top of the draft next year. But if he turns out to be good, well, so much the better. Their most notable defensive addition has to be DeForest Buckner. They traded the 13th overall pick to get him. You better hope he's good. And I think there's a pretty good chance that he will be. At a uh, production ratio of 1.42 over the last two seasons as a defensive tackle, that's pretty awesome. He also led the 49ers on that run-stop metric we look at a a lot. Uh, Tackles within a yard of the line of scrimmage or a yard or less, or tackles on runs of a yard or less. Uh, He had 19. That was the most on the 49ers. Pretty good sum there, again, just for a defensive tackle. Playing in a different system this year, will he be as good? I don't know, but he's been pretty darn good so far and over his last two seasons. Again, that production ratio is hard to argue with. So how concerned should you be about the Indianapolis Colts? I would say medium. The Colts this year, last year, last couple of years, seem like a team where it depends which one you get 
from week to week. Which, which Colts team are you going to get? Are they, it's going to be the good Colts or is it going to be the bad Colts? You never really know. The Packers have a few of those teams this year, and we're taking a look at, at a lot of them in this episode. The Colts, the Eagles, the Titans are all kind of those sorts of teams. The Colts, I, I would put at about medium concern, and we're going to have to see how they get rolling because the Packers don't play them again uh, until week 11. So we're going to have to take some time to wait and see what sort of team they are. But uh, at least early on, I'd, I'd say there's reason to at least be wary of the Colts. The same is kind of true of the Eagles, although I'm more concerned about the Eagles than the Colts. The Packers play the Eagles in week 13. They get them at Lambeau Field, an afternoon kick, 325 kick if you're in central time. Wish I was. Uh, the, in 2019, the Eagles were 9-7. and seven. That was good for first place in the dogfight that was the NFC East. The Eagles made their money on defense last year. They were sort of middle of the pack on offense, 14th overall by DVOA, 17th for the pass, 13th for the run. But on defense, 12th overall, 16th against the pass, 4th against the run. That'll get things done, especially in a division where everything is pretty close. On offense, I think you could go one of three ways for their most notable offensive addition. Jalen Rager or John Hightower or Marquise Goodwin, or perhaps just look at them all together because these players all have two things in common. They're all receivers, and they've all been clocked at 4.43 or less in the 40-yard dash. Jalen Rager rate a 4.22 at his virtual pro day. He was a 4.47 at the combine, so a little bit slower. John Hightower a 4.43, Marquise Goodwin a 4.27. The Eagles clearly wanted to get faster at wide receiver, and they did. I think Goodwin's the most conceptually interesting pickup because they almost sort of got him for free. They gave up pick 190 in this year's draft for Goodwin and pick number 210. The 20-slot difference between 190 and 210 is pretty negligible. Just eight points of value on the Jimmy Johnson trade value chart, so it's pretty close to a wash there. But Goodwin, I think, would be worth way more than eight points if he's anywhere near what he's been in the past. If he's at least a a receiver worth carrying on your 53, I'd have to think he's worth more than eight points on on the value chart. It it seems like a pretty good deal for the Eagles there. They picked up somebody the 49ers clearly didn't want and managed to do it pretty much on the cheap. Their most notable defensive addition has to be Darius Slay. They traded picks number 85 and 166 to the Detroit Lions for Slay. That's a third and a fifth round pick there, respectively, 85 and 166. Then they gave him a three-year, $50 million and change dollar extension. That sounds like a pretty expensive price to pay, but you got to look at how this contract breaks down. First, remember, it's an extension. He's still going to play under the his old contract for this year. So Slay is 29, he's made three straight Pro Bowls, and he's going to have cap hits of 15.75, 19.75, and 20.75 for his age 30, 31, and 32 seasons. But his hit is just $4.3 million this year. So really, after the dead cap money drops after next season, you kind of just go year to year and evaluate if his cap hits just $4.3 million this year and fifteen point seven five next year, that really works out to just pretty much a one-year extension. And then you're basically off the hook as far as serious damage to your cap after that. That's a pretty savvy pickup, I think, for the Eagles. Because even if they get like 90% of Darius Slay this year, 
or of what he was in the past couple years this year, and like 80% the year after that, that's still pretty darn good. And chances are you weren't going to get a player that good with your third or fifth round pick. Now that said, I'm always kind of a little bit philosophically against trading multiple picks for one guy, but if it's a known commodity, and that commodity is as good as Slay has been, it starts to make a little bit more sense. It's at least defensible. How concerned should you be about the Philadelphia Eagles? I'd say fairly concerned. Philadelphia tends to be a smart, well-run team that's going to be in contention just about every single year. don't see much reason that's going to be that different this year. I would expect to, to get a pretty tough game from the Philadelphia Eagles. Moving along, the Carolina Panthers up next. Packers play them in week 15. It will be a Saturday game or a Sunday game. We don't know yet, and that's kind of neat. But the Packers will have them at home, at Lambeau Field. In 2019, the Panthers were 5-11, and very last in the NFC South, and they weren't good at pretty much anything. They did run the ball pretty well, ninth by DVOA. But overall, just not super special. Didn't do anything super outstanding on offense other than run the ball. Didn't do anything super outstanding on defense, so they were just outside the top 10 against the pass. Their rush defense was 32nd, though, so just run on them all day, and I guess you just don't have to pass. But they have made some wholesale changes. A new head coach in Matt Rule and a new starting quarterback who happens to be their most notable offensive addition. That new quarterback is Teddy Bridgewater. So Cam Newton out, Teddy Bridgewater in. He had six games last year, including five starts with 27 or more passing attempts. And in those games, he went 132 of 195 for almost 1,400 yards, nine touchdowns and two interceptions. That's pretty darn good. But is betting on him to be that good in a new system, in a new team, with a new head coach and fewer weapons around him a good idea? Maybe not. But that might be the wrong question. Is betting on Teddy Bridgewater a better idea than betting on Cam Newton? I would say probably yes. If he can just throw fewer picks than Cam Newton did, then he almost certainly is a better bet. Other than last year where he played two games, Newton has only had one season in his career where he's thrown fewer than 12 interceptions. That was his 2015 MVP year, and he still had 10 that year. Now, I get that he's a dangerous player. It can be a dangerous player when he's right. He just hasn't been right from an injury perspective in a long time, pretty much since 2015. Are you betting that he's going to be healthy again? That seems like a fraught proposition to me. That's a big ask, just for him to be healthy when he hasn't been healthy, when his playing style demands that he takes a lot of hits. That's tough. And I really feel for Cam Newton because he was a great player at his very best. I just would have a pretty low degree of confidence that he's going to get back to that. And that's kind of a shame because he was pretty unique. And you always like to see the unique players in the NFL last for a long time. You don't even have to like him. He's just, there was nothing really like him in the NFL. And you wish like guys like that could have long careers because it's good to have different playing styles in the NFL. That's interesting. We, we I, I would rather have a few guys like, like Cam Newton and Lamar Jackson and, I don't know, even like a Taysom Hill. I would love to see somebody like Bill Belichick go a whole season with someone like Taysom Hill at quarterback. A guy who's probably not that great of a thrower, but he's a super athlete. You can do some interesting things with him running the ball. That would be wild to see. And Cam Newton was probably the closest to that that we're going to get. He's like a, a full-on inverted veer option attack quarterback who also had the arm to throw it 70 yards. 
There just aren't a lot of guys like that around. And you, I wish you could see more guys like that. But the Panthers are still probably, after saying all those nice things about Cam Newton, they're still probably smart to move on from him. Uh, the Panthers' most notable defensive additions has to be kind of taken as a group their first three draft picks. They take Derek Brown, the big defensive tackle, in the first round, then double up on defense in the second with two picks. Yetter Gross Matos, uh, the athletic edge out of Penn State, and Jeremy Chin, the hyper-athlete safety out of Southern Illinois. If you're looking to spice things up on defense, get more athletic, that's a pretty good way to do it. I would take that. How concerned then should you be about the Panthers? Basically, whatever I said about the Colts. With a new coach and a new everything, hey, they could be a lot better. But it seems like they're probably going to be that one of those teams where you don't know what you're going to get from them week in, week out. And that's not super unusual for a new head coach. That was the Packers for a lot of last year. You didn't know what you were going to get out of them week to week. They rode that to a 13-3 and record. But Man, it got interesting there a few times. It was uh, not always the prettiest 13-3 and record. It was still 13-3, and so don't throw any, any, any shade at that. But it can be rough at times, and, and it kind of feels like that might be where the Panthers are headed this year. Finally, let's wrap up our look at the 2020 Packers opponents with a look at the Titans. Packers play the Titans at home in Week 16, currently scheduled for Sunday Night Football Count me a little bit doubtful about that. I am not super confident that game is going to stay on Sunday Night Football. That is probably going to get flexed out of there to make way for a a game with more playoff implications. That tends to be how they like to do things late in the season. Not saying the Titans are are, are boring or anything or that the Packers wouldn't deserve to be in that slot. Not saying that at all, but NBC probably wants a little bit more compelling matchup there in week 16, probably some divisional matchup or something with, with playoff implications. The Titans were a pleasant surprise in 2019. 9-7, second in the AFC South, very efficient on offense, sixth overall by DVOA, sixth in passing, eighth in rushing, pretty solid on defense, 21st against the pass, so not great there, but solid against the run, ninth overall. Their most notable offensive addition really is kind of a run-it-back sort of situation. They re-signed Ryan Tannehill, who had the run of his life last season, and it made him a very wealthy man. Ten starts, coming in for Marcus Mariota, went 188 of 270 for 2,600 yards, 22 touchdowns, and five interceptions. Also, 40 rushes for 181 yards and four touchdowns in that same span. Not too bad. For his trouble there, leading the the Titans to the playoffs, he is rewarded with a four-year $118 million extension with $20 million guaranteed. You know, I wish just for a while, like for two and a half months, I could be the best in the world at my job and then be set it, set for life. That seems pretty great. Everything else is gravy from then on. Uh, hard to beat if you're Ryan Tannehill. Most notable defensive addition then for the Tennessee Titans is probably Christian Fulton. Nothing super headline grabbing here for the Titans on defense this offseason. Fulton, the second round pick, a corner out of LSU. Good size, but not great size at 5'11 and a half. Just barely an elite athlete at 8.0 relative athletic score. He seems though like the kind of guy who's going to end up playing for a long time after people went out of their way to talk themselves out of him because he's only just barely an elite athlete, he'll probably go on to play for 10, 12 years or something like that and make everybody look stupid. Or he'll flame out after a year and make me look stupid. Uh, People who like other people looking stupid win either way, so good for them. How concerned should you be about the Titans? I would say slightly more 
than other medium concerned teams on this list that we've talked about because the Titans were way better last year than most people thought they'd be. And I don't think there's much reason to think they can't be again. If they keep executing like they have, if they play solid defense, hey, no reason they can't still be really good. However, the Packers also get them in week 16, which is functionally almost the same as playing them in week one of 2021. It's just so far away. There are so many things that are going to happen now on the field, off the field between now and then. These teams could look completely different. The starting lineups from week one are almost certainly going to be different in week 16. Injuries, uh, guys not being what you think they are, it's it's just going to change a lot between now and then. And, and it's tough to put a lot of stock into predictions based on what they did last year um, into predictions about what we think they're going to be like this year. But hey, no reason they can't be good. Let's transition to talk about our book from Book Club. Take your eye off the ball, chapter 10. We're talking about defensive backs in this chapter. Two things really jumped out to me from this selection of this book. Uh, Kerwin spent some time talking about tall corners and gives a really interesting checklist Uh, for players you might be considering at safety. So he had a pretty lengthy aside talking about tall corners, kind of based around what the the Seattle Seahawks did with the Legion of Boom, having a couple really tall guys there, Richard Sherman Sherman at 6'2", Brandon Browner at 6'3". Why don't more teams get tall corners? Well, it's tough to find them, for one thing. There aren't a lot of corners who are just natural corners playing at at 6'2", 6'3". But Kerwin points out that if you're going to find them, the other side of the ball, wide receiver, is not a bad place to do it. The Packers have been showing a bit of a preference for taller corners. Other than Jair Alexander, they do tend to like height. Of the 10 cornerbacks currently on the roster, only two are under six feet tall. Five of them are 6'1 or taller. Stanford Samuels, the undrafted free agent, is 6'1. Will Sunderland, another undrafted free agent, is 6'2". Kevin King, the second-round pick from a couple years back, is 6'3". Marc-Antoine Ducoy is 6'3", the CFL corner coming down to play in uh, in American ball this year. Then, Kabion Ento is another 6'1 corner, an undrafted free agent last year. He's especially interesting because he is a converted wide receiver. And if you're looking for somebody with ball skills, with athleticism, with the ability to know what other wide receivers are going to do, why not take a guy who's probably not going to cut it at receiver and switch him to the other side of the ball and see what he can do? That's what the Packers are banking on here. Let's see how it plays out this year. Then Kerwin offers up a great way to just quickly evaluate what kind of players you have at safety. Four things he likes to be likes your safeties to be able to do. Support the run when you line up in the box. Cover deep, like a center fielder type safety, like a cover one situation. Uh, play half of a two deep zone, and then blitz. Let's take a look real quickly at the four safeties the Packers played the most last year who are still on the roster this year, and see how they line up against that checklist. Adrian Amos, I think generously, maybe grading a little bit generously on a couple of these, can do all four. He can do pretty well down around the line of scrimmage. He's good enough in coverage that he can play single high safety or as part of a two-deep look with Darnell Savage, and he can also blitz pretty well. He's got the the body type to do both of the run support and blitzing type stuff. Pretty darn good safety. I'm pretty happy with him. Darnell Savage, I think, can do three of the four. 
He's not much for support against the run, but he's pretty darn good in coverage. He's athletic enough to play the single high. He's good enough in coverage to play the two deep zone. And he's athletic enough that he can blitz the quarterback fairly effectively. Raven Green is not so, so, so much a cover safety, but he's good in the box. The, the Packers play them as, as that tweener, dime linebacker type. And he's good getting across the line of scrimmage. Again, good body type for that. But then Will Redmond, you've got, who, who played a lot of snaps last year, is good on special teams, but he doesn't really do all that much else well. So I think if you're, if you're looking for somebody who's vulnerable, it's Will Redmond. And there may be some opportunities there for a guy like uh, Vernon Scott, the seventh round draft pick this year, to make a name for himself. He could take aim of that four safety spot and make a little noise there on the roster. If he proves to be good on special teams, he might get an opportunity to show which of these four things that he is able to do for the Packers this year. So keep this, this checklist in the back of your mind as we go into training camp this year, whenever that might be. So I've got for you on this episode. I thank you so much for listening in. I do appreciate everybody takes the time to download one of these episodes and listen in. If you like this show, go ahead and share it with somebody you think um, would enjoy hearing it as well, because that's how we're going to expand this conversation around the Packers and help everybody continue to become smarter Packers fans. Because as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.